Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can find us beyond the FM dial worldwide at RadioNorthland.org where you can listen to us live in the moment or you can go back and check us out in the archives. We have, well, over uh, a completed seven seasons of Wrestling Memories Then and Now archives. Very good stuff, very cool interviews from uh, some of uh, yesterday's wrestling superstars, some of the great authors, the movers, the shakers. We have them all. Yes, that's at RadioNorthland.org. And you can listen to us live in the moment on the TuneIn app for uh, smartphone users. It's free. That's the best part of it. And one of the rare things you can get uh, free in a smartphone these days, I, I tell you. Uh, welcome to the program. I'm Glenn Broggett sitting uh, in and flying solo this week. Uh, George Shire on assignment, also on assignment, the Grizzled Vet, uh, Mike McCurdy. Mike down there in the mobile studio in the great uh, state of Texas. He's going to be back here in upcoming editions of Wrestling Memories. Well, I'm going to bring back a returning guest to the program. He's here uh, this week. We've had him on a few different times uh, to the show to promote uh, a few of his wonderful books. Uh, this guy does some very good, well-researched, well-thought-out books about pro wrestling. Uh, most notably, uh, uh, we're talking about Bluegrass Brawlers. If you haven't read that book, check it out. It's very cool. Louisville's Greatest Show. He's done a few other books as well. We could get into them. But you know what? The thing we want to talk with him about today... Is something that we last uh, chatted a little bit about with him the last time we had him on the program. Uh, yes, it's about the original Black Panther, Jim Mitchell. And now there is a book that's going to be uh, soon to be released about Mr. Jim Mitchell. And we're going to bring the man in to tell us a little bit more, kind of refresh our steps here of where we left off talking about wrestling's original black panther it's always an honor to have him on the guy he can eat sleeps and wrestles man we're talking about mr john cosper thank you so much for being on the program welcome back my friend hey glenn thank you very much it's always a pleasure to be back with you yes yes uh, last time we were uh, uh, together on the program we had variety you had a variety of different releases that we were talking about uh, one of which you helped uh, get an interview uh, for the for the program and i do thank you so very much was with madman pondo and uh, if I didn't have a chance to th- to thank you, I'm going to thank you once again uh, for for helping us with that. That was uh, one of the more interesting, very informative, just fun interviews we had of 2019. I'd say Pondo is he's since the day I met him, he's one of my favorite storytellers in the business, and um, it's one of the things that I look for when looking for somebody to work with on a book. And uh, I mean, just the stories and. You know, the best thing about Pondo is he'll tell you the most outrageous story you ever heard about, you know, eating a cheeseburger in front of David Blaine when he's going 40 days without food in a glass case or, you know, being backstage at a Marilyn Manson concert and both of them putting Vicks VapoRub in their tear ducts to see who will tear up first on a $100 bet. And just the part you're like, you're making all this up. He's like, okay, here's the picture. Here's the video of me and Marilyn Manson. <laughs> you know, he, he, there's no BS with him. He's, he's led a crazy, wonderful life. He grew up a wrestling fan and, and got to, to live it, and he's loved every second of it. And, uh, you know, he's, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that interview with him because, man, I, I certainly, I, I still enjoy it when he calls up. It's like, hey, I got to tell you this story. And it's always going to be a good one. You have some definitely interesting people in your Rolodex. I mean, you have uh, you worked with Pondo, and then you talk about Dr. D. David Schultz. And, and Dr. D is really, he's like a fish to water. Again, it seems like you, I, I'm always reading about something online where he's making an appearance. He's promoting his book. He's really getting out there and really integrating again with some of the people he worked with beforehand in pro wrestling. And I think that has really blossomed him uh, in getting him back into that uh, area uh, w- with the fans and, and some of his colleagues alike. 
I, th- I think he's itching to do a little bit more, too. He sent me a, a text today. He said, hey, put this out there. And it was basically saying, I think all elite wrestling needs Dr. D. I've got a lot to contribute, a lot to give. And it uh, seems to me he's got the itch to, to do a little bit more even than just making appearances. And um, I think if the price is right, you know, just about any – you know, it's it's such a ripe time right now for for promotions, not just you know, not just the McMahons and WWE, but with other groups. And um, I, I think he'd enjoy being out there again and, and uh, having a little bit of fun. Yeah, he's one of those things, that, uh, one of these uh, talents that is really, when you think about it, because he took so much time away from the ring, you know, working as a bounty hunter and just finding you know life outside of wrestling, and he he really has a lot of untapped. Uh, you know, for a guy at his age and this stage in life, he's really really untapped. For, for things that he could bring to the pro wrestling game for this younger generation. Absolutely. He's going to be, uh, when he's uh, not only getting an award at Cauliflower Alley Club is in, uh, coming up here end of April, 1st of May, uh, he's going to be leading a seminar. And he's gonna, there's going to be a Q&A with Dr. D. And um, I know a lot of young independent talents go out there. I, was, um, I don't know if he's going to make it again this year. I'm hoping to see my buddy, Mr. the hitman for hire, Mr. Grimm, out there. But uh, I, t- I told him even before it was announced publicly, hey, Dr. D's doing a Q&A. And he's like, oh, I'd love to be in there just, just, to, just to learn from this guy and, and what you can pick up. So um, certainly anybody who's going to be out in the Vegas area needs to come out, you know, meet him in the nostalgia room and definitely take advantage of the opportunity to, to listen to him, to ask questions and, and to hear him tell stories in person. And, um, you know, I mean, what you saw on TV is, you know, there's, you know, he, he's still that tough as nails guy, but. Um, he's got a great sense of humor and a great recall, and, and he'll he'll shoot the breeze with you and uh, tell you some stories, make make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, especially when he gets into his bounty hunting days. Mm-hmm, most definitely, and very cool that, that he's going to be receiving an honor out in Las Vegas here this spring with the CAC. That's uh, you know another way of uh, getting kind of welcome back with open arms back into the wrestling fraternity. I mean, he he left, but they they were always uh, kind of back at the door open whenever he was ready to walk back in. Yeah, and he was, uh, you know, he, he really kind of felt, you know, kind of felt left you know, when when he left the business and he was, you know, got in ceremony, so he showed the door. He was like, nobody called, nobody checked up on me or anything like that. And you know, he's 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 enjoyed reconnecting, you know, with a lot of people and stuff. You know, he was he was great reuniting him with Bret Hart when we uh, uh, Bret wrote the forward for the book and. Um, it was a lot of fun at Starcast, seeing him, you know, catch up with old buddies and stuff like that, and, you know, and seeing him go up and um, staging hugs over breakfast with Haku and the Barbarian and stuff like that, and, um, you know. So I mean, he's, you know, he, he, there's 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 still some hurt from from a lot of what happened back in the day, but uh, you know, he's um, it's he definitely enjoys getting back out there and, and seeing his buddies and telling stories. And, and uh, you know, just just in, in definitely enjoys meeting the fans, and you know, and, and making new fans because you know, there's, there's a whole generation that has no idea who this guy was, you know, because he was gone before WrestleMania one. Mm-hmm. And, and another one I could add to that list. I mean, and thankfully uh, they, they they had some reconnection before he passed. Was was Gene Okerlund? You want to talk about a guy that had such a a plugged in chemistry with David in their interview archives? Definitely uh, uh, tell the tale of that. You can watch those, and you could crack up yourself and you watch and you just enjoy but you could see just what a great chemistry and you could see what a respect that they had for one another uh, and gene was such a natural for what he did and you know it was when i think back to when i got into wrestling you know the first name i knew was hulk hogan second name i knew was mean gene you know because he was the guy on the microphone interviewing everybody he's the guy who introduced you to junkyard dog and, and the heart foundation and and uh, all, all the others and stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he and David were, were, if you haven't watched those videos on YouTube, you're missing out on so much because, um, I mean, so many of them just outrageous. And you just, you know, 
Gene was a professional and you know, and and kept his composure way way more than I think most people would, you know, because he never knew where any of these guys were going to go, much less David. But um, there were a couple times the the, uh, the Sergeant Slaughter promo in Cape Cod is 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 still my favorite, you know, where where David gets Gene to break up so much they actually have to zoom the camera in off of Gene because he's he's laughing so hard David's popped him. That is just awesome. Well, you know what? Let's go back. You know, the last time we, we had you on the program, I want to go back to this again. We, we were talking, of course, about uh, another great book of yours, uh, Louisville's Greatest Show, uh, the story of the uh, Allen Athletic Club. But towards the end, as we were uh, mentioning other projects that you were uh, you were working on and sinking your teeth in, aside from uh, the just-finished at the time Mad Band Pondo book, was a project that, that I could really tell that this was a, a labor of love, a passion project for you uh, about the life of a guy that you know a lot of pro wrestling fans from from these generations these younger generations probably never got too familiar with but his story is one that if you told them and you enlightened them about this guy you you would get hooked just to, to watch and just see how his life went I, i'm talking about uh jim mitchell the original black panther and this project that you've been working on is uh coming up towards the finish line here uh with the re upcoming release of the original black panther the life and legacy of jim mitchell let's talk about you know what really drew you to jim mitchell uh what was it about him that you know while you were researching for another book that uh kind of stayed in the back of your mind stayed in your head that made you want to kind of follow up and see what was uh what was to this guy well, what, what caught my attention about Mitchell was it, it happened when I was working on Bluegrass Brawlers. And uh, I, I remember sitting in the Louisville library and scrolling through the old microfilms and stuff because the Courier Journal wasn't available online as of that time yet. Um, and it, like, like it was ancient history. It was five years ago. But uh, I remember coming across his name, and I was looking in particular for people who were from the Louisville area and, you know, might have gone on to do bigger and better things, you know. And, um, you know, Stu Gibson was, was one that's, that's a guy, actually, he's from New Albany, which is, which is where I went to high school. We graduated the same high school. Um, I'm making a huge push to try to get him into our high school hall of fame over here, as a matter of fact, but, um, Mitchell was another one that jumped out at me. And, uh, there was a mention of him in a, at a 1940s show. And it talked about how Mitchell got to start wrestling in Louisville. Uh, he was a native of Louisville, had worked as a, as a bellman at one of the downtown hotels and, um, that certainly stuck out. I mean, he, he was a guy that I started looking for every opportunity I could and, um, really did not find, you know, he, he showed up at a couple of different shows during that particular era when Haywood Allen was, was running the show. Um, but I was really intrigued by him. And then, uh, I remember getting a copy of Joe Jarris's book, um, oh, whatever happened to gorgeous George. And one of the chapters in that book tells the story about the riot in Los Angeles that happened in 1949. Uh, as a result of a main event match between Jim Mitchell and Gorgeous George, where a fan had jumped in the ring and uh, tried to, after Gorgeous George had thrown Mitchell out of the ring and kept kicking him, wouldn't let him back in, fan comes into the ring to try to, you know, take up for Mitchell, and Gorgeous George does what a wrestler does and knocks the fan out, and the fans rioted. And, uh, you know, Mitchell and George managed to escape and, and get to the back and everything, but the fans fought until the wee early hours of the morning, um, and over time, I actually was, was able to find out, you know, there were a couple of people injured, a couple of people hospitalized. There was one old lady who actually sued Gorgeous George and Jim Mitchell for the injuries that she sustained. Um, so it, there was definitely something to this guy where he, he really, you know, went on and, and made a big star of himself. And 
Um, I tell you, the, the more I researched him over the five years and, and uh, you know, discovering more and more about him and uh, and then hitting, you know, I mean, luck of all lucks, you know, having somebody put me in touch with the guy who bought Jim Mitchell's house after his stepdaughter had passed away, found all of his wrestling memorabilia still in the house, um, and a large chunk of it, unfortunately, damaged and, and had to be thrown away because it was just, <clears throat> it was too far gone to save. But, um, I mean, I... I there were there's almost a thousand documents scanned on my computer at home, you know, letters and photos and, and different things like that, you know, that this guy managed to save and keep, you know, and it allowed me to really kind of piece together um, an incredible life story of, of a guy who was who was much more of a pioneer than, than I think I, I ever dreamed he, he might possibly be when I first started researching him. Oh, yeah. Going through the book and, and looking, not just reading the story itself, but to seeing some of the pictures and of some of the stuff that you scanned from, from, from the collection. I mean, this was some very amazing stuff. I mean, not only uh, do you get like stuff like his legendary pipe collection, you have all of these, these cards of these little, sometimes these little joke, uh, little cards. You have uh, letters from promoters. I mean, this guy, talk about, I mean, and it's very unfortunate that not everything was able to be discovered, but the the stuff that you did i mean this guy could you imagine if this all of this stuff w- was 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 ready good and ready to go i mean just from the portion you got was was a, a tremendous uh, bounty of some very cool stuff to help really piece together the story of this man's life and and really let him be known just aside from you know being the guy who was involved in that great riot with, with gorgeous george it, it really was i mean i i, I can say walking into you know, dave marciniak's living room the first time and you know, this pipe collection I've read about for the past couple of years, there it is. I mean, you've got three giant wooden frames, I mean, covered in pipes, and then there's three additional giant Rubbermaid tubs um, just full. I mean, everything you can, every kind of shape and, and color and size and, and, and material of pipe you can possibly imagine. And, um, you know, I, I helped Dave to kind of catalog everything, and he, he's retired now. A lot of this memorabilia was sold, and um, I'm sure probably some of your listeners have picked some of it up when it was all on eBay, but this entire pipe collection is still intact in Toledo and, and he's still looking for, you know, the right opportunity, the right price, you know, and unfortunately the pipe collecting market is a little bit funny. We're looking for that perfect person who's, you know, a got some money to spend, be a pipe collector and C has an affinity for pro wrestling. And there's gotta be somebody like that out there. So there's a um, niche that get, please get in touch with there's there's a niche for everything. Now you just got to find that. There's there a gotta, really there's got to be somebody yeah. out there. But can you imagine all of this stuff when you this this you know Dave buys this place and he, he finds all of this. You know that has to be quite overwhelming. Just the fact that you know you see all of this stuff and then you got to figure out what this is and then have somebody come to help you out. I mean the process itself had to have been overwhelming considering I, I didn't I don't know if how big of a fan Dave was of pro wrestling, but even of the history of pro wrestling itself. But this had to just be a really kind kind of an overwhelming thing initially before everything kind of got laid out. More people were around to kind of guide him through the process. Well, he, he really, I mean, he, he was not a wrestling fan. He bought the house sight unseen. He heard a couple, you know, the story he told me was he heard a couple old ladies talking about it, you know, over breakfast on a Saturday morning. They gave him the address of the place as they told him the bank was just, just going to be, you know, selling it for whatever they could get for it. Um, went over, walked around the house, went to the bank, made an offer of, I think he said $12,000. Um, ended up, you know, as, just doing it as a flip. He had done 21, and this this was the 22nd final flip that he ever did. Um, and then he just said, "I'm going room to room, and I'm finding wrestling boots, I'm finding programs, I'm finding letters and photographs and things." And he, he realized very quickly this this guy was 
somebody, you know, and he, he didn't know who he was. Again, he wasn't a wrestling fan and, and never really watched wrestling. And I mean, you know, most fans, you know, it, it's really until the last couple of years, only, you know, real diehard history buffs would know his name because um, his, his career was pretty much done before television. You know, he'd made some tele- TV appearances, but it was pretty much done before television came in. Um, and anything pre-television era, you know, I mean, you know, good, good luck getting people to, you know, to know specific names and everything from that re- time. But um, it was, it was just amazing the things that he he was able to save and, and had kept and a um, couple, couple of interesting things right off the bat. Uh, not only do I find the program from the night of the riot in 49, but I find a letter from the California state athletic commission uh, which you probably saw in the book, you know, ordering Mitchell to appear and to answer for his part in inciting the riot. Uh, so I immediately set those two items aside and says, I'm buying these from you specifically. These are mine. <laughs> um, and then another uh, really fun thing that I found was he had actually, you know, he and his, his ex-girlfriend had, had gone through this stuff and um, had done a little bit of research in, in trying to find somebody to purchase all, all of these things, you know, at a couple of years before I even got to them. So uh, again, serendipitous that that stuff was still there by the time I was doing research and, and put enough feelers out online. Somebody was able to connect me with them. Um, but he had found in a catalog somewhere and highlighted the names um, of a few people who collected wrestling memorabilia. And uh, all three of the names that he circled and highlighted were people that I know, <laughs> um, including Tom Burke, who was one of the first you know wrestling historians to really start feeding the information on black Panther. So um, I scanned that photo in. I sent that to all three of them and said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. He never, you know, I, I got to him first. So um, it was really kind of cool to see that. And, and just, uh, again, it was just, everything just fell into place. It, the timing was perfect, um, you know, and, and really fortunate and, and really, really very blessed that the opportunity happened when it did. And um, I was just, just so thrilled to, to get my hands on this history. And, and, and even now, you know, the stuff that, that I purchased direct from Dave and, uh, that is in my office. Every time I go down there, I'm like, I can't believe, him. you know, this pair of wrestling boots sitting here. And uh, here's the flag that was draped over his coffin at his funeral, you know, a poster from Arizona and, um, you know, some different photos and things. So um, it, it's, it's still sort of surreal to me that, you know, this, this guy who, you know, one little blurb about him in a newspaper article from the early 1940s caught my attention. And uh, now here I am getting ready to, to release his story and, and share his story with the world. Yeah, all these like things, it just fell into, you know, fell into just proper place, just some great luck too. Because again, you wouldn't be able, you know, weren't for all of these great archives being discovered, we wouldn't be able to start to help piece this story about the man, Jim Mitchell. The book is called Original Black Panther, The Life and Legacy of Jim Mitchell. We're with author John Cosper. And yes, before Marvel Comics created their Black Panther, oh, before Bobby Seale and, uh, and uh, Huey Newton founded the Black Panthers, Yes, uh, there was a man from Louisville, Kentucky, by the name of Jim Mitchell, who took on the moniker of the Black Panther. But the thing is, before we we get going, the moniker itself, the Black Panther. Now that wasn't something that was, uh, you know, that was it wasn't something that was exclusive to Jim. This was something that was used uh, to refer to other athletes at the, you know, at that time, in and around that time. So it wasn't exactly something exclusive. It was more or less something that he kind of took on. Uh, that was uh, that was used for other people in the sports world and even in the pro wrestling world uh, in and around that time he decided to take that on yeah there was in fact i went ahead and made a catalog and, and listed as many of those black panthers as i could in the book and 
Uh, we're talking a lot, a lot of different wrestlers. Uh, Alex Kafer, I believe, was one name. Um, you know, there, there were quite a few other African American wrestlers that took on that moniker. Um, Jack Claiborne, who uh, you know, the two of them crossed paths quite a bit. Sometimes he was known as Gentleman Jack Claiborne. Other times he was billed as the Black Panther. And, um, I come across certain newspaper articles, you know, where I was like, no, this is not the Black Panther Jack Claiborne from last year. This is a different Black Panther. Uh, so the two of them crossed paths, even in territories where they had shared the same name. And uh, then we, Willie Davis, who has actually become my next, now that's going to be my next historical project that I'm starting to gather info on. But he worked under a mask uh, as, as the masked Black Panther out in California and had a great run with that. And then took that, that act to a couple of different other cities around the country. Um, and then uh, another story that I just happened to come across that, that's in the book is the story of a woman from Italy, who was known in the small town as the Black Panther, uh, not as a compliment. She was actually a, a Nazi sympathizer in this little Italian village um, who had turned quite a few of her Jewish neighbors over to the authorities. And um, She made the mistake uh, sometime after the war of coming back to this tiny little town. She was recognized immediately and arrested. And, uh, was such a, I'm fascinated by spies and espionage and, and things like that. And, um, it was just a fascinating you know, juicy little you know historical tidbit there from World War II, and I was like, well, I gotta throw that in the book too. She's a Black Panther, so. Um, but yeah, it was really kind of a moniker that was attached to any African American athlete who was very fast. Um, and, and, and even even the great Jesse Owens was referred to as the Black Panther, and the guy who won the silver medal. Um, that name escapes me right off the top of my head here, but uh, the guy who came in second place to Jesse Owens at the Olympics, he was also known as the Black Panther. So, um, and, and Joe Lewis, the, the boxer, who was one of Jim Mitchell's friends, apparently, because we, I've got quite a few photos of the two of them together, um, but he was sometimes referred to as the Black Panther. And um, really, it was, it was applied to a lot of African-American athletes who, who were very quick, very athletic, and, and you know, um, you know, fast strikers in the ring and everything. So uh, it was applied to quite a few. But um, the reason I used the name, the original Black Panther on the book title, uh, when Mitchell had his uh, liquor store, the Black Panther carryout in Toledo, and the Black Panther Party started to come to Providence in the 60s, Mitchell actually renamed the store the original Black Panther carryout, just to kind of distinguish himself and, um, you know, from, from you know, the, the controversial political group at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to go back even before uh, Jim Mitchell, because Jim Mitchell, though, one of the early uh, African-American wrestlers, he wasn't the original, one of the originals, because we have, you mentioned in the book a gentleman that predates Mr. Mitchell. And could you tell us a little bit about this wrestler and his, uh, his tie to history as far as African-American wrestlers uh, in pro wrestling? Well, the, the one that was the, the first successful, you know, African American wrestler, and again, he, he may himself may not have even been the first, uh, was a gentleman from South Carolina named Zero Small. Uh, he had been a slave prior to, to the Civil War, and then after the war, had made his way up to New York and uh, began wrestling in some of the clubs and, and, and the bars in that area, um, and, and became quite a popular wrestler. And um, unfortunately, one one evening there was, there was an incident in the ring, and, and uh, one of his opponents took umbrage to it. And he was actually stabbed, but um, he was able to recover from his wounds and, and go on wrestling. But uh, um, Vero did ha- did have. Uh, some success as a professional wrestler back in, uh, again, I'm, I'm, uh, dates escape me off the top of my head right now, but the, we're, we're talking 1870s, 1880s, you know, and when the sport was really starting to come to Providence and up in New York and um, you had guys like P.T. Barnum and, and Thomas Edison counting themselves as fans at, you know, during that era. And, um, 
of course, the, the great William Muldoon, you know, was, was part of that whole scene as well. So I may be crossing my timelines here a little bit. You know, that's, that's kind of Tim Corbin's territory of the 1900s. But Vero um, Small certainly, you know, deserves credit as, as you know, at, at this point as being certainly the first, um, the first real African-American to, to really find some success in the business. When people go back and talk about great African-American wrestlers uh, as far as helping to break that color barrier, I mean, uh, a lot of people would think, you know, that the go-to would be a Bobo Brazil per se. But Jim Jim Mitchell was, was, was a guy who, again, there's talk about predating. Jim Mitchell was kind of the guy that, that helped, you know, what was very, very early on of uh, the breaking of the color barrier. Could you talk about how Jim integrated himself into the wrestling, first of all, uh, you know, wrestling under the hood, and then eventually... Uh, wrestling interracially uh, for audiences. I mean, this wasn't just an easy, easy trail to get to. Could you talk about how he was able to uh, kind of break that color barrier in his own time? Well, the interesting thing that I discovered about him and and couldn't believe as I went back further and further is for Jim Mitchell, there wasn't a color barrier. Um, Certainly not in the territories where he worked. Now, now, down the further south, which is, you know, territories in Louisville was, was one of those places that, that he worked a little further south. You know, when he would go in and wrestle, he was really only allowed to wrestle against other African-Americans. And that was the, the promoter's decision and, and, and sort of the culture of the area. But um, Mitchell broke in in the early 1930s wrestling for, um, for Jimmy McLemore in Indianapolis. And there were no other wrestlers of color in the territory. There were no other, there were no Mexican-Americans, there were no Asians. Uh, he was wrestling against white wrestlers. He was wrestling against, you know, Indiana wrestling champion Buck Weaver. The two of them wrestled all over um, Indiana and Ohio and Michigan. Uh, when he relocated to Toledo area, he was wrestling against white wrestlers. Uh, you go back and you look at that time, and even when, when Jack Claiborne starts wrestling in, in his territories, there were, no, there were not enough African-American wrestlers for these guys to make a living wrestling only other African-Americans. So um, that was one of the neatest things about this book and this project was discovering that, you know, there was not really, you know, in certain regions, certainly there was a color barrier, you know, and and you couldn't bring in one African-American without putting them in the ring with another African-American, or at least someone else of, you know, a different minority. But um, where Jim Mitchell went, where Jim Mitchell worked, he didn't have that issue in, in the ring. He was wrestling against white wrestlers. Um, his top feuds in the 1930s were guys like Wild Red Barry and Dangerous Danny McShane and uh, Martino Angelo, who was one of his lifelong friends. And, um, again, to me, that was the most shocking and most surprising thing because, you know, from early on, I was told, you know, they, you know, there was a color barrier. You did not wrestle against white wrestlers. And, you know, it wasn't until Bobo Brazil came along. But um, after talking with, uh, you know, some of the Indianapolis, you know, wrestling people and everything, kind of the conclusion we came to was, um, the whole idea of Bobo breaking the color barrier was really more of a, you know, it was, it was really more of a promotional type thing and showing, you know, this is the first real African-American superstar. and He's the first one to, you know, step in the ring with guys like Lou Fez and um, Buddy Rogers and, and, you know, some of the top stars of the day. But, you know, they were able, that image stuck and it, and it sold, you know, due in part to the fact that Bobo Brazil came along after television had become a factor. Uh and again, Mitchell and Jack Claiborne and Celie Samara and King Kong Clayton and all these other guys that came before, you know, their stories kind of were forgotten to history because there's no television record. There's no film record of these guys um, wrestling against white wrestlers. And, um, yeah, I, I, I've got a catalog of all the matches that Mitchell had, you know, that I was able to find from 1930 all the way up until, you know, the early 1960s when he had his last couple of, 
you know, kind of not really comeback matches, but just special appearance matches. And uh, the vast majority of them, the, you know, I'd say 96, 97% of the matches were against white wrestlers. Um, and again, to me, that's, it's, it's just kind of the history changing, you know, part of this whole book is, you know, really rewriting the story of African-Americans in the sport. And, you know, that they were accepted in the locker room by the white guys. They were trained by the white guys. They wrestled with them. Um, you know, it, it really the, the, the thing that, that I can learned even before this was, you know, there were the racial barriers broke down primarily in the locker room. Uh, largely because all the guys in there, it didn't matter if you were black or white or if you were Hispanic or, or whatever, they had a common enemy. It was the promoter who was going to pay them at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, really, if you if you could work and, and you were safe and you, you knew that guy was, was not going to hurt you at the end of the night, you know, you shook his hand, you went out, you did your match with him, you shook his hand afterwards and thanked him for it. Uh, and then you all lined up and, and you stood in unison against that guy who was going to try to try to cheat you on your way out the door. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he was a very, very well-respected wrestler and, and he had a lot of friends and, um, really he was a guy who, you know, he changed minds and he changed hearts one person at a time. And, uh, he, he did his crusading against racism and against the prejudice of the day, you know, in the locker room, one, one person at a time, you know, one wrestler at a time, one promoter at a time, one fan at a time. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that's like, I, like I said, you know, when I first wrote Bluegrass Brawlers, you know. I was basically told that, you know, that there were no other, you know, he was wrestling only against African-Americans. And based off the records that I had from Louisville, he only did wrestle African-Americans in town. It was usually Claiborne or, or Clayton or Samara or someone else like that. And, uh, when he came back in 1954, he wrestled against Ricky Waldo, uh, who became his protege. And uh, it wasn't until 55 when Bobo Brazil came to town that, you know, an African-American stepped in the ring w- with a white wrestler. Um, so that was, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and revise bluegrass brawlers a little bit because, uh, the narrative has changed and I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, having the opportunity to work with arguably one of the biggest pro wrestling attractions of all time, gorgeous George in the Los Angeles Olympic auditorium, the legendary riot that, that was, uh, Definitely uh, one of the first areas, I guess, you when you look back in the story where he, uh, you know, we're talking Jim Mitchell was uh, competing with white opponents. And boy, the money that they drew. I mean, we talked about the at the beginning of the interview with, 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 with the with the riot and just how much uh, fans could get riled up into believing. Uh, you want to talk about what a what a just an impact that those two had on each other working uh, not only, not only in, in Los Angeles, but other parts of the country. Yeah, they had they had a uh, they had quite a few matches, but particularly up, up up and down the the coast in, in California. And, um, I mean, certainly Gorgeous George was was a uh, you know a draw anywhere he went. But you know there were certain guys that, that if he stepped in the ring with, he knew you were gonna you were gonna get an absolute classic. And you know Mitchell was he, he was a babyface. You know I'd say ninety nine percent percent of his career he actually did work a little bit of heel in Ohio at one point. Um, but he was largely, I mean, he was as baby faced as you came and he was, a, he was a guy the fans loved and respected that he was going to do everything right. Um, he was a hard worker and he, he was going to give you everything in the ring. And, and they knew gorgeous George was, was just, just a rotten scumbag. And he was a guy that the men absolutely hated and you know, the women adored for, you know, for different reasons. But, um, the two of them together really did click and they, they were definitely a draw. And, um, one of the neat things that, that, Dave had saved, you know, from his house was actually a ledger book 
uh, that records all of Jim Mitchell's, where he was on every given night, how much money he made, what his expenses were. Uh, we're talking lodging, we're talking food, we're talking anytime he had to buy new boots or trunks, anytime he had to pay for a license. Uh, five years of this man's life were recorded. Um, it's neat kind of sitting down with that, going through those pages uh, and comparing it side by side with, with the record of matches that I've got. You can tell, you know, just by looking at the numbers almost, you know, when he was in the main event or when he was opening. And uh, sometimes that number gets up a little bit higher, you know, for, for what his payout was the, on a particular night. And uh, you look over and you're not surprised. You see that gorgeous George was his opponent that night in Los Angeles or whatever. But uh, um, they definitely made a lot of money together. They certainly generated a lot of heat. Um, one interesting story that, that I, that I found too was, um, was after the riot, uh, Mitchell had, was kind of sent into, it looks like he was sent into exile. We don't know exactly for sure what happened in the meeting with the athletic commission, the promoter, but, uh, in August of 49, you see where he applied for his license again in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, he spent the next six months on the opposite coast wrestling. But, uh, on, in January of 1950, there, uh, there's a promoter in Colorado advertising an appearance by the black Panther, Jim Mitchell, who recently was in a riot with gorgeous George in Los Angeles. And that very same evening, Mitchell's wrestling in New York, someplace else. Uh, so somebody had obviously, you know, grabbed an African-American wrestler and said, guess what? You're Jim Mitchell. We're going to make some money tonight. So, um, Mitchell had drawing power and he, he had name power and, and certainly the riot, you know, and, and the feud with gorgeous George gave him even a little bit more notoriety than, uh, he, certainly if he, if he wasn't able to capitalize it, which I'm sure he did, he was a very savvy businessman. Uh, another promoter in Colorado made a few extra bucks off of him that one night. Mm-hmm. Oh, sort of like a Jack, uh, almost a Jack Pfeffer thing, but he didn't switch the name yep. up. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> another another name uh, that he had a chance to work with with a few few matches here and there was uh, Gene Stanley. Now we can talk a little bit about. Uh, I mean, this opponent. Uh, I mean, not quite as you know as high as the tier as the George Gorgeous George, but Gene Stanley definitely was a star in his day as well. He, cer- he certainly was, and the two of them had had quite a rivalry on, on both coasts in California and also in New York and. Um, as a matter of fact, some of the, uh, the there's only two matches I've been able to find with surviving footage between you know Mitchell and someone else, and uh, one of them is Gene Stanley, and uh, it appears from from what I've been able to piece together, uh, this was actually film, not television footage, but film footage where it was it, the match was shown um, either partially or in its entirety as as part of uh, as you know when you go to the movie house, you get your newsreel, you get your cartoon, you get a double feature, and you get a wrestling match. And um, I've, I've got an ad that's in the book where, where that particular match between him and Gene Stanley, one particular match with him and Gene Stanley, was actually shown in movie theaters, which is which is kind of neat to see. Very cool. I'm talking with John Cosper. He's the author of the original Black Panther, The Life and Legacy of Jim Mitchell. And we're, we're talking about a few of uh, Jim Mitchell's highlights uh, of a career that you definitely want to check out in this book. Uh, we're just going to touch on a few more things here uh, today. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get back into the conversation uh, about Mr. Mister Jim Mitchell. And as far as we talked about Bobo Brazil and what an influence he was, let's talk about uh, as far as mentoring uh, guys, uh, what Jim Mitchell did in regards to to these, you know, like a gentleman like Bobo Brazil, who went on to be really such a great ambassador and such a an important uh, historical figure when it comes to not only pro wrestling but the African American pro wrestler. Let's talk about the mentoring with Bobo Brazil. You know, kind of a guy, guiding him in his own way, and also another gentleman uh, that may have been forgotten, Ricky Waldo. 
Yeah, um, Mitchell spent a lot more time traveling with, with Ricky Waldo than he did Bobo Brazil, although he and Brazil certainly crossed paths quite a few times. And um, the, the story that I, I've had, had a lot of trouble corroborating exactly when this would have happened or where they would have crossed paths, but uh, Mitchell's finishing move as, as he got older became the cranium cracker, which was simply it was it was a headbutt move. Uh, and of course, Bobo Brazil's famous closing move was the cocoa butt, which was also a head uh, a. a tripping over my own words here, which which is also a headbutt. But uh, uh, you know the the story goes that, that Mitchell had actually gifted that to Bobo Brazil and asked him, you know, you know told him you can carry it on and, and make it your own. And um, Mitchell had a uh, had an autographed photo of of Bobo Brazil hanging up very proudly inside the liquor store at, at the Black Panther carryout in Toledo. Uh, so the two of them definitely had crossed paths a few times. And I'm, I'm certain Bobo Brazil had had sat at the, the learning tree of Jim Mitchell to, to gain what he could from him, not only as a wrestler, but, you know, how to survive and, and how to make it as an African-American in the sport. And um, the guy that Mitchell really took under his wing, and, and for a couple of years they were they were riding partners, and they were sometime opponents, uh, but they spent a lot of time as, as a tag team, uh, was Ricky Waldo. Uh, and Waldo was from Virginia, and uh, he and uh, Mitchell kind of connected when, when Mitchell was kind of in his waning years in the mid-1950s. And, uh, Mitchell would Mitchell would have been in his mid forties by this point and uh, looking to retire and you know but uh, finding a young guy who was, was very strong very athletic like Ricky Waldo uh, he was able to kind of you know take him under his wing and teach him the ropes and uh, by pairing up as a tag team uh, as they did quite a bit especially down in, in the Southwest where where they became pretty big in New Mexico and Arizona uh, Mitchell really probably extended his wrestling career by a couple of years because he could you know split the load with a guy during a match and. Let Ricky do the heavy lifting, and you know, then Mitchell come in for the finish, or, or you know, just just kind of kind of take it easy a little bit, just only having to work half the match. And um, they kind of went their separate ways after 1955, and um, Waldo seemingly drops off the map. And I was not able to, you know, unfortunately, was not able to find out, you know, if, if Waldo was actually his real name, you know, if it, you know he, he had another name that I could try to find out more of his, his back history. But uh, thanks to a couple of the sources, including Bruce Hart and also Koji Miyamoto. Uh, was able to find out that uh, Waldo actually relocated to Calgary, um, became part of a group of African-Americans, including Luther Lindsay, that worked for uh, Stu Hart for quite a while. And then he also made his way to Japan and uh, became a star and became a champion in Japan as well, working for uh, working for All Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, what about Jim Mitchell in regards to international, uh, you know, contests, international competition? Let's talk, did he do much of that? He did. Uh, working uh, working out of the Toledo area, he, he worked in Ontario quite a few times. And uh, I actually have a wrestling license from Nova Scotia where he made a, a trip up there. Uh, there is a story that was, was frequently told, and I was never able to fully corroborate whether it happened. But um, it, if it's true, in, in the uh, late 19, probably 1929, 1930, uh, when he was still in his very early 20s, he made a trip to Europe and spent a couple of months traveling with Jimmy McLemore and some other wrestlers across the country. And um, so he was wrestling quite a few exhibitions all over the continent of Europe. And that was a story he talked about for years and years. And, and even when he passed away, his stepdaughter reiterated that, yes, my father went to Europe and uh, kind of learned the ropes from, from a lot of different styles of, of European wrestlers on that particular trip. Uh, and then in, uh, I want to say 1955, he had a trip to Australia. And um, actually, I've got quite a few newspapers and articles and, and magazines from his Australia trip. And uh, there was a whole stack of um, payment receipts and payout receipts from, you know, the, the shows that he worked in Australia and uh, some documentation showing, you know, where where he had transferred his money back to America before he came home. And 
Um, also, uh, his passport was, was was one of the things that uh, Dave was able to save and keep. Um, but the, I mentioned earlier that the, the match with Gene Stanley is one of the few bits of footage that remains. Uh, the other matches, I want to say it's against Bob McCune, uh, is on YouTube, and I've actually posted that one on, on my uh, website, eatsleepwrestle.com. Uh, you can see Jim Mitchell in action, uh, not only wrestling against Bob, but doing a little bit of comedy wrestling and the way he was selling for him and stuff and the way he was kind of messing with Bob and, and, and kind of working up the heel and, and, and playing the baby face and playing to the crowd. So uh, it's, it's a fun little piece of footage to see and, and to get some insights into a guy who was really at that point past his prime, but was still working and, and was still definitely entertaining the crowd. When was it that he decided to kind of wind it down and, and take on a role more of a referee than he was an active in, in ring competitor? It would have been shortly after that Australia trip and shortly after he and Waldo split. Um, 55, really, I believe, was, was the last full-time year that, that he was on the road. Um, he kind of tapered off 56 and 57. And, um, you know, he, he'd had a number of businesses in Toledo. At one point, he had owned a hotel and a nightclub. And, uh, of course, he had the Black Panther carryout, which is the, the liquor store that he operated from the late 50s all the way until um, the early 80s when, when it was, you know, bought out by the city and, and, and urban renewal type project, but um, he went to work as a referee for Martino Angelo, who again, had, had been one of his arch rivals when he started in the 1930s, and Angelo was the guy booking Toledo at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, he, you know, he worked as a referee and uh, kind of mentored some of the younger guys, I'm sure, from the back, and um, every now and then, you know, something would boil up in the ring, and there'd be, be some tensions, and, and Mitchell would have to settle a score, and he'd put the boots on and come back as a special attraction. Uh, all the way up until about uh, 1963, and uh, memory serves me right. Uh, again, speaking off the top of my head here, uh, his final match was actually against Killer Kowalski in 1963. Um, after Kowalski had taken umbrage with something he had done in the ring as a referee, and, and, and Mitchell won that match and, and went out on top. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the shop uh, he he owned. Uh, you know the uh, the liquor shop because it, it sounded like this store, this Black uh, Panther carryout, uh, was definitely uh, I guess you could say shrine to his, not only his career but his involvement in pro wrestling. And I can, it'd just be interesting just to take a person inside of uh, just what what was inside aside from the product you could pick up at the carryout. Yeah, he, uh, it was, Door Street was apparently a very, very thriving African American community at one point, and there were a lot of black owned businesses on this particular street. And, uh, Mitchell had a wall that was called, uh, Panthers Gallery, where he had all these 8x10 photos signed by, you know, people he had wrestled with and, and, and photos he had collected from other guys over the years. And, uh, what was cool is that there's a snapshot, which is in the book, of that wall up above, and, um, if you zoom in on it and, and look real close at, at the photos that are on the wall, the vast majority of those photos were also still in Mitchell's possession when he passed away. And, and a number of those photos, including the um, the Volkovs and, and Vern Gagne and uh, um, and Bobo Brazil and, and Ricky Waldo, he, he still he had, he had kept them even though the liquor store had closed down. But um, you know he he, he was part of the community and uh he, he didn't mind if somebody came in just to shake his hand or to ask some stories and he always loved telling stories and uh you know sharing his memories and it was also the place where his buddies knew where they could find him uh martino angelo would come down with uh, a guy by the name of jerry jaffe who worked as uh dr jerry graham jr 
And uh, when when he would stop in, Mitchell would take him around to the back room. He'd pull out the good stuff, and he and Martina would start telling stories about the old days. And uh, Flying Fred Curry was another guy who got to go and sit in when when his uh, father Bull Curry dropped in to, to visit Jim Mitchell in Toledo and uh, listen to these old warriors and tell tell these stories about how it used to be in the '30s and '40s. And, um, so it was. I, I would be a fascinating place to see and. Um, there's a, there's a photo of him and his wife standing out front and there's a kind of a, a painting of a, one of the folk, you know, the publicity photos that Mitchell used of him and his wrestling trunks and the name, you know, the black Panther carryout written on it. Tom Burke and I were looking at that one day on Facebook and saying, boy, wouldn't it be nice to get our hands on that? That would you love to find that sign somewhere? And, uh, unfortunately, not to my knowledge, not found in, in Jim Mitchell's house, but, uh, certainly would be an interesting piece of history to, to get your hands on. And, um, I had tried at one point too, looking up the address of, of the liquor store on, on Door Street in Toledo, and uh, using Google, you know, Google Maps and everything, and using the Street View. And unfortunately, it was it was demolished ages ago. And um, that neighborhood, did, from, to my understanding, the neighborhood still has, has never been redeveloped or you know re- rebuilt or anything from when they were trying to trying to clean it up back in the 1980s. But uh, um, and uh, anyways, but when. when when, when it was closed down and, and when the street was kind of bought out by the city, that was pretty much when Mitchell retired and um, spent the remaining years he, he could with his wife in, in their in their house and uh, on Lincoln Avenue. You know, it just seems so so crushing when you think about just you know the the, the thing in in the face of urban renewal, just how much they undercut him on 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 the price and how they bought him out. Reading about that, it seemed like they got off pretty pretty handsomely for the piece that in the history that they got uh, out of him with with uh, you know buying that building for, for this uh, story of uh, you know progressing the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, and he um, really he he did not own the building, he but he had rented the space for years, and that was why he was able to get anything at all out of it. But uh, um, he, you know he you know he had his house that had been long paid for. He'd lived in that house at that point for almost thirty years, and um, he, he and his wife had, had been there since you know the mid nineteen fifties. In fact, I believe the purchasing agreement for for the house is in the book as well. That was one something else that we found. But um, and uh, Julia was his second wife. Uh, there's, there's also the Speculate, you know, unfortunately, the story of what happened with his first marriage and, and, and how the second marriage came to be is, is, is lost to history because there were no diaries and there's nobody who knew the Mitchells and, and knew the story to tell. But uh, it, it's it's you definitely know that there was some something juicy, something interesting that happened because the divorce happened one month and a month later he's remarried. <laughs> so, um, but uh, it, it was it was neat because, um, I, again, looking through these documents and kind of kind of piecing things together and. And, and finding out what's true and what's not, because I mean, Mitchell grew up in the era of kayfabe, and a, and a lot of the interviews, you know, he'll tell contradictory stories about how he grew up, how he got into wrestling, and uh, you know, the, the bully that supposedly pushed him around, and he ended up in the gym learning learning a couple of wrestling moves. But um, some of the stories you read, you kind of shake your head and go, "Yeah, right, that that, that can't possibly be true." Uh, you find out are actually true. Um, his wife, yeah, you know, he always talked about his wife was was part owner of a coal mine and, and this and that and how, how they were set for life because of it. Uh, lo and behold, there was a document where the two of them had purchased a car sometime in the 1970s and his wife, Julia was listed as owner of a coal mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, again, just, just fantastic. Oh my goodness. You know, he, um, you always have to take it with a grain of truth. And 
you know, I've thought often how, how neat it would have been to be able to, to speak to him in person and to hear the stories in person. But, you know, Mitchell was an old school wrestler. And, you know, when he, when he passed away, it was uh, 1996 when he, when he passed. But, you know, even back then, you know, he, he probably still would have kayfabed you right up to the end and not actually told you what really happened. So, um, very, very interesting stuff here uh, to, to, to hear. I mean, again, this was a guy I, I may have seen written up a little bit. I mean, and to be able to to read your book and, and kind of get a little bit more of a backstory about him. I mean, like I mentioned, you were on previous before and you kind of sizzled me on the idea of, uh, and of the life of Jim Mitchell. And reading it, you've definitely delivered a home run with this story. And I hope a lot of people uh, pick up on it and learn about the history of, of Jim Mitchell and, and his impact. You probably, you know, some people honestly probably we didn't know about it you know it's a great way to discover your history and it's a very readable enjoyable and absorbing account of this man's life in the ring thank you very much yeah it's i always try to you know when, when i'm in an independent wrestling show and uh, especially if i see somebody really impresses me i think has potential I'll, I'll i'll trade them you know i'll trade them a t-shirt for a couple of books or um or even you know give away some freebies because i, mean, I think it's so important to, to learn the history and to know the history, especially if you want to be in it. And, um, you know, I've, I've talked to some of the younger guys, and even some of them applying this philosophy. There are things that pro wrestlers did in the 1940s and the 1950s that haven't been done since then. Uh, things that made them a lot of money. things that made them very, very big stars. And, you know, all you got to do is go back and find one little gimmick, one little thing to do, um, you know, that hasn't been seen in a long time. And you can make yourself stand out from the crowd and make yourself something, some, you know, unusual. Um, a guy I really like up in New York is a guy, Mr. Darius Carter. Uh, if you ever hear him in a podcast interview, he, he's not going to shoot with you. He's going to kayfabe you. Uh, and he is a bad guy to the core. He is a heel. He won't even, doesn't even carry t-shirts, you know, and there's, there's so many heel wrestlers out there that, you know, that they're, you know, nasty and stuff in the ring. They'll come out, they'll smile, they'll shake hands, they'll take photos, and they'll sell t-shirts. And Mr. Darius Carter doesn't want any of that, you know, and that's like, that's what sets him apart. You know, that's, what's going to make a difference for him. And, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, go back and learn your history and find out about these people. You know, if, if you're a lady wrestler, go back and read Mildred Burke's biography and, <clears throat> you know, find out all you can about people like Mae Young and Elvira Snodgrass and June Byers and, you know, discover what it was that, that made them big and discover what it was that made this business great at that time. And, um, you know, certainly you, you'll come away with not only inspired, but hopefully finding something you can take and use. It's like, man, people haven't seen this in forever and it's going to, you know, it's going to work. Now, as we are speaking uh, today, uh, you're kind of putting the finishing touches uh, on, on, on the book and getting it street ready for some good and proper release uh, to the fans out there. Uh, could you tell us uh, how close we are and, and what other things may be sprinkled in as we uh, get close to really putting this book out and getting it released? Well, knock on wood, as, we, as we've been speaking this last hour, uh, the forward for the book uh, should be hitting my email box. And uh, Mark Henry, WWE Hall of Famer and soon-to-be Cauliflower Alley Club uh, honoree, along with Dr. D, uh, is the guy writing that forward. Um, I got to meet uh, Jim Cornette, introduced me to Mark back in November at a, at a comic convention here in Louisville, Kentucky, where, where uh, Mark actually trained for quite a while with OVW. Uh, he and I spent a couple hours and uh, just sitting and talking about Mitchell. I brought a pair of boots to show him, and uh, I've got this scrapbook that, that I'll have out in Vegas with me that is just full of photos and letters and um, personal memorabilia and things like that. And uh, Mark was just fascinated by the story, and you know, I said, "Would you would you like to write the forward?" He said, "Absolutely, I would love to." And 
Um, he's really excited about the story, really excited about helping to get the word out about who Jim Mitchell was and uh, sharing this history. He's, he's always had a you know, real fondness for, for the history of the business. And um, he, he's just been, been a great guy to work with and, and, and very passionate about, about the whole thing. So uh, hopefully by the time I hang up, that will be in there. I've got, I've got the book cover ready to go. I've got a beautiful book cover by an artist named Adrian Johnson. Um, I was actually getting ready to go with a different artist, a guy I've used a couple of different times who's, who's, who's done some tremendous work. Uh, before I could email him, Adrian emails me and says, hey, I heard you talking about Jim, on Jim Cornette's podcast about this Black Patch of Jim Mitchell. Who's doing your book cover? And he sent me a link to his website, and I saw some of his artwork, and I was like, this kid's talented. He's really great. Um, and we've got, you know, just absolutely beautiful artwork on the front, you know, of, of Mitchell holding Gorgeous George in a headlock. And um, it, it's, it's going to be, I'm, I'm really excited to get it out. It's, uh, you know, uh, as, as much story as you can possibly squeeze out, you know, without actually being able to sit down and, and hear the story from Mitchell himself. And uh, again, it's just chock full of, of photos and letters and uh, pictures and programs and posters and, I mean, th- things that haven't been seen in, you know, decades. And uh, I'm very, very excited to get it out there and for people to rediscover who this guy was. And that can be uh, found when when it's released, of course, uh, at your at your website. Uh, EastleyBrestle.com is where they can come and, and get information on it. I'll be selling some autographed copies through there. Uh, it'll also be available on paperback on Amazon.com once it's released. All right, all right. We've gotten that information out of the way. You were mentioning you you were you were dabbling into some other projects. Can we get a little bit of a tease? Because every time I talk with you, we always seem to get a little bit of a tease about what you got coming up here. Uh, Glenn, I got I got so many projects on my plate right now. It's not funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. Uh, actually, a month month ago, a uh, independent faction uh, called the Bomb Shelter and I released uh, the first and what we hope is going to be a series of young adult novels. Uh, the Bomb Shelter is uh, Joseph Schwartz, Randy West, and Zodiac. Um, people and, and people who know me by wrestling may not know before this, I, I was, was a science, I've written a lot of science fiction, actually still writing science fiction. And, uh, one day Joseph emailed me out of the blue and said, we'd like to tell our story as time travelers. And I was like, well, let's do it. Um, so we released the book bomb shelter, a scattered timeline about a month ago. Um, uh, and we, we do have plans to get a second one out by the end of the year. Um, we Willie Davis is my next historical project. He's, the, the next one after Jim Mitchell that I'm going to be going back and doing a deep dive on. Um, Davis, of course, worked as, as the masked Black Panther in California. Uh, he was one of those guys who Mike Mazurki helped to break into the movies and, and had quite a few different movie roles and um, became a promoter in Louisville in the late 1950s and, and uh, just a very colorful character. You know, he, he had won some money on, on a game show on television and um, certainly seemed to be a guy who in his time loved the media and just a very, um, when I did my first search on newspapers.com and pulled up the first match and everything, and the police are dragging him out of the ring. I'm like, this is a guy whose story I want to know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I love finding you know, those, those forgotten tales and those underdogs and, and people that, uh, you know, people have heard the name, but, you know, may not necessarily know their full story. So, um, that one will probably we're, we're probably looking a couple you know a year or two out before that one will be around. But uh, I do have two autobiographies actually in the works right now, and uh, not ready to release the, the names of both of them. But they are figures that uh, uh, certainly you know, one one of them uh, much better known than than the other as as far as being a big name and, and uh, a wrestler who's been around and worked for a lot of promotions. Um, he's a guy very similar to Madman Pondo who has helped out. I mean hundreds 
you know, of, of wrestlers along their way and, and is still kind of helping to give independent wrestlers the nudge and, and, and the push. And uh, he's a guy who has an incredible memory, you know, for, for dates and times and places and is a great storyteller. Uh, the other one is a name people don't necessarily know and, and actually not a wrestler, but he is tied to the wrestling industry. And uh, if you grew up in the WrestleMania era, he is a guy who had a huge impact on how you enjoyed the wrestling business. And uh, that's all I'll say right now. He, he's, he's got a tremendous story and uh, that one will probably be out in the summertime. And, and I'm hoping the other one will be out uh, by the end of the year. So uh, two more autobiographies on the way. Oh, that sounds so good, man. Just let me know when those releases come because we'd love to have uh, them on. We'd love to have you back on the program because it's always a a good, fun hour. Thank you so much, John, for uh, taking time and uh, telling us about your uh, upcoming book, The Original Black Panther, The Life and Legacy of Jim Mitchell. You're invited to come back on anytime, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate it, Glenn. Anytime, give give me a call. We'll we'll do it. Sounds good. For wrestling Memories Then and Now and for John Cosper, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now.